Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Believe me, people were scared of polio. They wanted a vaccine. Still, we waited for a safety efficacy trial. And I think the same thing has to happen here. Last month, President Trump announced the beginning of Operation Warp Speed, an initiative to develop and produce a vaccine for COVID-19 in record time. But creating a vaccine that's safe and effective is just the first step in a long and complicated process. Even when we have a vaccine, it's almost certain that there won't be enough for everyone. This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, a bioethicist, and a health policy expert. And I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. This is the second episode of our three-part series, on vaccines. Millions of Americans and billions of people all over the world are going to want this COVID-19 vaccine. Who's going to get it first? Zeke, can you explain a little bit more about what exactly this Operation Warp Speed is? Who's involved? What are they doing? So Operation Warp Speed is the government's effort to rapidly accelerate potential vaccines against COVID. The government said it's going to bet on five vaccine candidates and speed up the process in two important ways. First, by providing funding to the companies developing vaccines, and second, by helping with the actual research. The funding will come from BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which already spends billions of dollars to support new biotechnology. The research support will come from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. They'll actually do the randomized controlled trials that test the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. Not not every vaccine and not every drug is developed this way. A lot of times it's just the drug companies going off on their own. But this is uh, because of the importance of a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, public-private partnership with the public side doing a lot and not just doing some of the science, but actually investing a lot of money to decrease the risk for the uh, drug companies. And there's already been some good news, right? Some positive indications about how this seems to be going? Well, I don't know about positive indications, but there are lots of leaks. Uh, So there's Moderna announced that it's tried its vaccine on some humans in the safety trials. And in those trials, they announced that eight of the uh, subjects had actually had an increase in antibodies against the coronavirus. And Moderna was one of the five companies that the government in Operation Warp Speed has said that they're going to support and pursue their vaccine. Zeke, I'm not a virologist, but eight doesn't sound like a lot of people. Is that really as promising as the press releases are telling us? Well, I think people are looking for some hope that a vaccine will work. So noting that in some people, you get the vaccine and your antibodies go up is good, but you're 100% right. Safety trials are done on hundreds of people, not eight people. And announcing eight, I think, was more for investors than it was for really about how well the vaccine is working. And yet people are hanging on to these 
indications of some hope. But, you know, Zeke, we're hearing predictions that go anywhere from a year to year and a half to actually not only having a vaccine, but getting it out to millions and millions of people. But then some people say, no, it's going to be years. It's a several layer process. Would you just give us a quick reminder of how these phases work for the development of a vaccine? So a typical vaccine development process has three phases. Phase one is the first phase with humans, and it's what's called a safety phase. That is, you test out a vaccine on healthy people and make sure that there are no serious adverse events like an immune storm or something like that. Okay, so an immune storm is definitely something I think I don't want to get. Once you've got several hundred people and you're pretty confident about the safety, what's next? Well, then you go on to phase two, which is what is called an efficacy trial. And that is you assess whether the vaccine increases the antibodies, assess the dose that you're giving of the vaccine to people. You're also monitoring for additional safety issues. Well, it sounds like phase two is a lot about the basic science of how the body responds to the vaccine. What's next? Well, phase three is the really important one. It's the actual effectiveness assessment. Does the vaccine actually prevent people from getting an infection with the virus that you're protecting them against? Typically, that involves thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of people who are healthy, going to get the vaccine and then go out in their normal everyday life. And we're going to compare the people who got the vaccine with the people who didn't get the vaccine and see if the people who got the vaccine got fewer cases of the virus. And then if that's true, you can license it. To learn more about vaccine development and production, we talked to somebody who's actually been a part of this process on the inside, Paul Offit. Paul is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And he was on the team that created a vaccine for rotavirus, which causes diarrhea. Can I begin by asking you, how long did it take you guys to do the rotavirus vaccine? 26 years. And people are talking about this in 12 to 18 months. Even with so many groups working on it, do you think that's likely given your experience? So there's a lot of differences between what we did and what was done there. I mean, our vaccine was fairly typical, which is that two companies were working on it, not more than 70. Here, you know, you have all these companies working, all this expertise, all this money, all these pull mechanisms to do this quickly. And I think what's happened is the timeline gets shortened in a lot of ways. One is that the animal model studies have been perfunctory or absent, that, you know, some companies are just skipping the animal model studies and going right to human trials. Two is the dose-ranging studies, which for us involve thousands of babies. Here, that dose-ranging trial that Moderna did in Washington State was 45 people. That's really small. In a dose-ranging study, different participants are given different doses of a new drug or vaccine to test how much of it is most effective or least harmful. And then, you know, then the phase three trial was for us a 70,000 child study, you know, for Rotorix, another rotavirus vaccine was 60,000, for human papillomavirus vaccine was 30,000 people over seven years. That's not this vaccine. I mean, this vaccine hopefully will be, you know, 20,000 vaccine, 10,000 placebo. I'm on actually the NIH active group, and that's what we're proposing be done. And hopefully we'll do that. But again, you'd have to be lucky. First of all, you're heading to the summer where there may be lesser incidence of disease. And, you know, you have to have a representative 
representative number of cases in the placebo group to be able to say it's effective. And so hopefully that will happen. But what they're doing, again, that's obviously much different than what we did, is that they're manufacturing at risk. They're mass producing the vaccine, assuming that one or more of these vaccines will be shown to be safe and effective so it can roll off uh, the shelves immediately. And BART is taking the risk out of that for him by paying for it. Paul, I have to say that listening to you, I get a little nervous. No or very limited animal studies, limited phase one, phase two with, you know, 45 people instead of thousands of people is what we get going to be safe. It's I think the proof is in the pudding and the pudding is a large phase three trial. I will feel more secure with a large phase three trial, at least with a put this vaccine into 20,000 people. I will feel better that at least it doesn't have an uncommon side effect. Now, it may have a rare side effect, but that's true really for any vaccine. Here's what worries me, and maybe this is my own paranoia and you guys can talk me out of this, but what worries me is that you're now making tens of millions of doses of vaccine in this warp speed program, and it's several vaccines. Now you're approaching October, November. This is a big win for the administration to say, look, we've got the vaccine, and to release it early before you've really done large phase three trial. You know, because warp speed is not novel. It was done once before. It was done in in the mid-1950s with the polio vaccine. When Jonas Salk made his polio vaccine, he tested it in 700 people in the Pittsburgh area. He found that it was clearly immunogenic and that it was clearly safe. But this country demanded a large prospective placebo-controlled trial before it would essentially license the product. And so that trial was done over a period of a year. 420,000 children got vaccine, 200,000 got placebo. It was a huge trial. And think about it. I mean, you think people weren't terrified of poliovirus, a virus which was paralyzing 10,000 children a year and killing 1,500, permanently paralyzing those children? Believe me, people were scared of polio. They wanted a vaccine. Still, we waited for a safety efficacy trial. And I think the same thing has to happen here. It's going to be a challenge. And I also worry that what's going to happen is one or more of these companies will say, look, it looks like it's safe. We've tested it in 5,000 people, 7,000 people. We haven't been able to show whether it's effective because there's just not enough disease circulating right now in order for us to do that. But given that one to 2,000 people are dying every day in the U.S., for example, and more in the world, let's just roll it out. And, you know, the history of uh, breakthroughs is always littered with tragedy. Uh, Just take your pick. And I just really worry that uh, we're going to find out things post-licensure that we hadn't expected for a virus that already has surprised us, right? This is a bad coronavirus. It's just made its debut in the human population. We've already learned to our surprise it's more contagious than we thought. We've already learned to our surprise it has a post-infectious phenomenon, this Kawasaki-like syndrome, which is completely unanticipated and has not been seen with any human coronavirus. And so we're learning as we go. And I'd just like to hedge our bets as much as we can before this vaccine is put into tens of millions of people many of whom are going to be healthy young adults who would not normally die from this virus. So be careful. Well, just for anyone who doesn't know, you mentioned this Kawasaki-like syndrome, which is a severe multi-system inflammatory disease related to COVID that we're just beginning to see in young people. Even though children in general have been significantly less affected by the coronavirus, this is a very worrisome outcome in a few of them. Paul, you've written a very well-received book about a really bad incident uh, concerning the polio vaccine that's called the Cutter incident. Can you say something about the Cutter incident in kind of summary way and tell us, you know, what relevance you think that has to our current situation? Well, its relevance is that it's warp speed. It was warp speed, you know, 60 plus years ago. While they were testing Jonas Salk's formalin-inactivated polio vaccine, 
five companies were mass producing it while they were doing the testing. And when they did the testing that showed that vaccine was safe and effective, then those five companies released their vaccines. One of the companies, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, made it badly, and they failed to fully inactivate poliovirus. As a consequence, there were two lots of vaccines that contained live, fully virulent poliovirus that was inoculated into 120,000 children, primarily in the West and Southwest. 40,000 of those children developed abortive polio, meaning short-lived muscle weakness. 164 were permanently paralyzed and 10 were killed. I think it was one of the worst, if not the worst, biological disaster in this country's history and gave birth really to vaccine regulation. Now, part the problem was the warp speed part of it. You know, we were making vaccines um, quickly because polio was a killer. And it wasn't, as I just sort of dug deeper into the story, Cutter wasn't the only one that had a problem. Wyeth Laboratories also made a vaccine that paralyzed and killed children. And so vaccine regulation was born in this country. And I, I don't think that that kind of thing could happen today. But it, it's interesting that a lot of the things that were in place then, the warp speed, the desperate need for a vaccine are also in place now. So you feel that would be very unlikely now because there's more visibility to this whole process than there was in those days? And we're much more sophisticated, I think, in terms of how we monitor vaccines. But again, and I don't think people realize this, everybody thinks the hardest part is the research part. The hardest part is manufacturing. To mass produce a biological is not an easy thing to do. I have no doubt we can make a vaccine. I have no doubt we can make a safe vaccine. I just want to make sure all the systems are in place to make sure we know as much as we can know before it's put into millions of people and that there are systems in place to make sure that we continue to know what's going on and to continue to alert the public of what to expect from this vaccine so they don't expect too much or too little. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. So, Zeke, Paul Offit says he has no doubt that we can make a safe vaccine. But as you and I know, there's a very vocal minority of people who won't take vaccines, no matter how safe they've proven to be. And we're going to hear more about that from Paul in the next episode. Still, that vocal minority is just a minority. Most people are going to be desperate to get this vaccine. It's clear that no matter how quickly we move, demand is going to outstrip supply. And this gets us back to the issue that we address in our very first episode of this podcast, the allocation of scarce medical resources. At that time, we talked about it in regards to the allocation of ventilators and ICU beds for very sick people. 
But now vaccines are going to be another kind of very scarce medical resource that we have to figure out how to ethically allocate. And we have to figure it out how to allocate among the 330 million Americans, as well as the 7.8 billion people around the world. Now, the United States does have vaccine allocation guidelines, at least for influenza. And one of the people who helped write those guidelines is a guy named Bruce Gellin. Bruce is now the president of Global Immunization at the Sabin Vaccine Institute, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C., that's focused primarily on improving access to vaccines in lower and middle income countries. For 15 years before that, he was the director of the National Vaccine Program Office at the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. Here's Bruce Gallen. When I came to HHS to run the National Vaccine Program Office in 2002, I'd learned that there was an effort to try to develop a pandemic influenza plan previously. There was a recognition a year before by the then new administration that the government didn't have a plan. And in fact, on the morning of 9-11, there was a meeting scheduled to discuss a pandemic influenza preparedness plan and what would be needed. That didn't happen because of the events of 9-11. A lot of other things happened. And a year later, when I came and met with Secretary Thompson, among the tasks he had for me was to lead the department's efforts on preparing a pandemic influenza plan. Bruce, why do you think there wasn't a plan before that? You know, I don't know. My take was probably a couple of things. One of them was that putting a plan in place, recognizing what would be needed to prepare for an influenza pandemic, was laying out a huge set of needs that didn't exist. And that comes with a big budget. So I think there's often a reluctance to talk about a plan that's needed because then you have to figure out how you're going to fund it. I think that was a part of it. I think another part was about setting priorities for who would be vaccinated early when supplies were limited. As you can imagine, this is going to be a tough call, particularly for a politician who in peacetime would have to signal the people who are going to be most important to be vaccinated. At the same time, it would signal those who would then be seen as least important. And my sense was there wasn't really an appetite for making a decision like that. I think that 9-11 changed that, of the recognition that an influenza pandemic was a lot like uh, some of the bioterrorism uh, scenarios and some of these tough decisions, both for funding and for decision-making, need to be made. So explain how you prioritize people. How did you think about who should get those first vaccines for influenza? And how do you think that relates to who should be the first people if and when we get one for COVID-19? Now, so there are some general principles, and I think the principles are still valid, of trying to balance a number of things simultaneously. Those who are vulnerable to the infection and its consequences, as well as those who contribute to the stability of society and the economy. So with that, there were four broad categories initially, and then had to fill in who those people were. But the broad categories were homeland and national security, community support services and healthcare providers and those who are caring for the ill and infirm, the critical infrastructure, the people who run the water service, the sewage service, the electrical service, all these parts that are otherwise invisible, the critical infrastructure for which there are people within that critical infrastructure who are individually important to keep those systems running. And then there was the general public. The vision was in the planet, everybody's in there somewhere. You're there because you serve some important role in the stability of society 
or because you are at increased risk of disease or potentially somewhere in the between there is your increased risk of exposure to virus because of the role that you're playing in society. So those are the broad principles. And how do you think these principles apply to COVID-19 right today? If you had to say, all right, we got a vaccine, one of, you know, Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca or Moderna's vaccine works. We've got it ready. Who gets it first? We've got 50 million doses. Who's going to be at the top of your list? I won't be surprised to see that the militaries are the top of the list. They're often prioritized like that. It's not that many people. It's, I forget the numbers, two or three million. But separate from that, healthcare workers clearly have to be at the top of the list. Unless you've been Rumpelstiltskin in a cage, it's pretty clear that the people on the front lines are at high risk for exposure. And importantly, they are going to keep the healthcare system going. The other question then, frankly, is separate from people who are at risk for disease is who else in the, I'll call it the critical infrastructure. There are a lot of people on the front lines, the grocery store clerks, bus drivers, there are a lot of people who are providing essential services. So I think that's going to be another one of these tough calls with a limited amount of vaccine, how to have the greatest impact, particularly early, but also recognizing that different than ventilators, Vaccines are there to prevent people from getting in trouble, not keeping them alive. So it's a different decision. We see that there are ways to prevent people from getting in trouble. These social distancing measures have kept people out of the way of the virus. So there's at least some flexibility in keeping people safe, even if they're not vaccinated, until they can get a vaccine. Bruce, what is your recommendation? I mean, if you were in your old position and the secretary of HHS comes to you and says, all right, Bruce, We've got, you know, whatever it is, 50 or 75 million doses. Tell me who gets it. Is it going to be the young kids from spreading it? Is it going to be the old kids at highest risk from dying, people with comorbidities? After, of course, the frontline workers. We got that argument. I think we understand that. But among the average citizens, which I take it is about 300 million people, who's next? Well, let me, so, so between the, quote, <laughs> your, your, your label of average citizens, and everybody's above average, right? <laughs> um, but I think that there is also the people in between. They may not be the frontline healthcare workers, but they're people, this is the critical infrastructure, they're people who in their individual positions are critical to keep certain sectors of society going. Those numbers are big numbers for uh, if you're going to put them all in the group picture, but they're relatively small. And we had an exercise, and I think they'll need to do it again, of within the critical infrastructure, who is really critical? Which people, because of the jobs that they perform, are critical to keep those sectors going? So I think that's another consideration. Then you'll see a lot of expansion about that because somebody say, well, I have the keys to the nuclear power plant, but I can't go to work because I'm a single parent and my kid's school is closed, so if you don't vaccinate my kid, then I can't go to work. So you can see the cascade of this. But I think that, to get to your point, Zeke, I think that we're going to need to figure out who those people are. And because of what their individual roles are in these sectors are important to keep society going. But among us average citizens, I'm not a frontline healthcare worker. I don't keep the Internet going. I certainly don't keep the electricity going. So where do I fit? Where am I going to get? You know, am I going to be excluded or included? And what's the criteria or principle that's going to be used? Well, the good news is the principle is that nobody's excluded. At least the thinking before was this is about a vaccine for anybody who would like it. 
So that was the principle. We know that there are people who don't like it, who might not want it, so we'll have to think about what the right supply would be. But the overarching principle is it for anybody who is interested in getting vaccinated. Then beyond that is having to look at what are the impacts. So right now you look at people who are older and have multiple chronic conditions are the ones for whom the virus has the greatest impact. So you can clearly make an argument to try to protect them. As far as children go, you know, we're still learning about this disease. And at least currently, they don't seem to be greatly impacted, although we're still learning. And that comment about children not being greatly impacted is very different today than it was just a few months ago when it looked like kids were getting off relatively easy. There's obviously a syndrome there. They may be infected and transmitting uh, virus. So again, this is how you're going to balance all these many things. But essentially, you're right that the majority of the, quote, average citizens will come after you handled the people who are on the front lines. When other interventions have been rationed uh, or managed because there's a scarce resource, we've seen celebrities you know, get into the mix and that becomes rather publicized. Are there protections against that happening in this kind of system that you've been working on? You know, I think that boils down to what the vaccination plan is actually going to be. In the past, the plan in this allocation strategy was to distribute vaccines, for the most part, pro rata across the country, and then leave it because the individual states had a much... Wait, wait, what does pro rata mean? Sorry, that you would send vaccines to states based on a portion of their population, and all states would get the same proportion as the vaccine became available. And then the idea was that this guidance would provide an overall guidance for which there might be some local tailoring. Now, you just don't know how that could play out at a state level. It could be that there is either some favoritism or an appearance of favoritism. But more importantly, you don't know how it's going to play out at the point of vaccine administration. If you're the doctor who's received the vaccine for your practice to vaccinate your practice, are you going to comply exactly with the way that the guidance provides or might you do something differently? So at the end of the line, I don't see that there are strict prohibitions about but some of that, quote, flexibility. But I think you're right. It'll be pretty visible when that starts to happen or if that happens with vaccination. And pro rata is not based on the prevalence of disease in a state. It's based on population. Is that right? Right. So I think that's an important point is that Again, we're trying to make a plan for this, that disease is going to come and go. We don't know how it will play out in the fall. We've seen already that there are these, quote, quote, hot spots that come and go. So it's really too complicated to be able to move vaccine instantly to, you know, a place before it's a hot spot, if you will, or to know that, to be able to move it around. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. We've been talking mostly about what happens inside the country and the extent to which government and the private sector and so forth have to cooperate. What about the global picture? To get the global economy going, people have to be comfortable traveling to prevent the virus from returning in pandemic form. Obviously, there has to be some kind of global vaccination scheme, perhaps over a number of years, but how worried are you on a scale of one to 10 that we are now in an era of vaccine nationalism where we're forgetting how important it is to have manufacturing capacity that works through supply chains? Well, Jonathan, you've mentioned about 10 things. All of them are important. And let me start with the last about supply chains, because we realize how complex our lives are, that some product that we get has probably been through a number of different places, a number of different countries, has ingredients or elements from a lot of different places for which if any one piece of that is missing, you don't have something. I hope that there's a recognition on the global front as well that that's going to be important so that at least there's recognition that not everybody will have everything they need and there'll be a need to recognize that there's global needs as well. That doesn't make it any simpler if you're a politician making a call, particularly if you have vaccine being manufactured in your country. But at least I'm I'm heartened by the efforts going on elsewhere. Not what I'm seeing here, but elsewhere, there's been a huge effort on the global front with a number of organizations, the World Health Organization, a group called Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccine and Immunizations, CEPI, a new organization that's created about developing vaccines for emergencies. And there's been a lot of pledging from other countries, we haven't pledged to that, about ensuring global equity. How it plays out when the vaccine's available, we'll have to see. But at least I'm hopeful that there's an increasing recognition that we're going to need exactly what you said, that we have a planet full of people who are vulnerable to this virus. This virus is very contagious. And unless there's immunity at a large scale, we're still all going to be at risk. So we recognize we're in a a new world here. But historically, how have countries gotten vaccine when they haven't been able to manufacture them domestically? So I mentioned before the Global Alliance of Vaccines uh, Immunization, called Gavi. It's based in Geneva. And they essentially, they came into being in 2000. And their principle was about vaccines that were otherwise available to the developed world, that why couldn't they be made available to the developing world? And now 20 years later, it's quite an enterprise in providing vaccine to those who don't have the ability to get it for themselves. They have reduced prices, they have high volumes, or a number of different things. And we work with them at the Sabin Vaccine Institute all the time in trying to strengthen these systems. So for, quote, regular vaccines, there's a system in place that provides particularly for those economies that aren't able to do it for themselves. But for emergencies, it's a different setup. For Ebola, that came into play, and some of those same organizations helped to secure a vaccine and helped to distribute that vaccine for Ebola, but that was in relatively few places. This is a much, much more complex setting because every country is going to have this need. Can this process work if the U.S. isn't part of WHO? It certainly isn't going to make it any easier. 
I think that it certainly can work. Having the U.S. participate in a constructive way would certainly mean more helpful. Even now, what I don't know is, you know, I keep hearing about unprecedented collaboration, which is great, and I hope it's true. But I hope that there is sharing of information as vaccines are being developed, because there are some principles and to make sure that the immunity we're getting is sufficient. What are we learning from these clinical trials? And I hope that the way the U.S. is positioning itself against the globe is not restricting the sharing of information, which is going to be a benefit for everyone. Because similarly, there are a number of candidates that are being advanced in other places, and we would benefit from knowing about those. So I hope that just because you have a blue passport doesn't keep you from talking to people in Geneva. And there are enough people involved in that. There are enough American scientists who've been involved in this that I hope that can continue. I think it's more about money than about people, but I actually don't know. So I'm going to be optimistic that the scientific sharing will continue as it has for a long time and that American ingenuity plays into what the WHO is doing and insights from the rest of the world help us as well. Zeke, it seems to me we could rush through the development and manufacturing process to meet the demand for a COVID vaccine, but the risks are too high. I think you and I agree on that. So then assuming there's not enough supply, who should get it first? Do you think any differently about this after talking to Bruce? Well, that's kind of a funny question. Bruce and I have been arguing about this uh, since 2005 when Bruce and his office came out with the first report on distributing influenza vaccine in the case of an influenza pandemic. And they had a, a pretty high up on their allocation list distributed to older people who had two comorbidities and were at high risk for death. And I thought that was wrong. I thought we should distribute it to younger people who in a pandemic are likely to have a high risk of death and in any case have a lot longer to live and you would want to save them for a long time. In 2008 and nine, Bruce actually flipped because they went out and did uh, surveys of people. And it turned out that Zeke's opinion was the one most people agreed with, save younger people uh, first. I think in COVID, it's a little more complex uh, than influenza. First, I think we do all agree that healthcare workers, people manufacturing the vaccine, people who are keeping the infrastructure of society, electricity, gas, water, uh, internet going are really important. But the controversy is who gets it next? And I think that is going to really come out as we get closer to a COVID vaccine. And I think that's a big controversy. Okay, well, you know, I accept it's a big controversy, but we've been studying allocation ethics in bioethics for decades. Can't you be a little more definitive than that? First of all, I think we do need some more data. And whatever I want to say here, I want to be tentative. I think we need at least two pieces of data. One is how well do older people respond to the vaccine? Because we know in a lot of cases, they don't respond well. And actually, when they get a vaccine, they're not actually immune. And so it may not help them so much. And the second is we need a little bit more information and understanding about how the virus spreads and therefore how we can use the vaccine to interrupt spread. My suspicion is that we're probably going to want to give it to young people and to people who can help the economy grow, in part because I suspect that the older people aren't going to generate good antibodies to this situation. In addition, you might want to use the vaccine for younger people who have comorbidities and are at high risk for dying, people who are obese or have diabetes or have a hypertension or heart disease or asthma. That's my suspicion. But again, 
As I said, I think we have to be a little careful to make sure that we learn from the data that are going to come out from the effectiveness trial about how well the vaccine works in which population groups. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content. Executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. And special thanks to Heidi Moorfield. If you like this episode, please make sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.